Welcome to Living with Oil and Gas, a special production from Inside Energy. We're here today to usher in a new American energy policy, one that unlocks millions and millions of jobs and trillions of dollars in wealth. That was President Trump speaking at the Department of Energy over the summer in Washington, D.C. at an event called Unleashing American Energy. This vast energy wealth does not belong to the government. Since my very first day in office, I have been moving at record pace to cancel these regulations and to eliminate the barriers to domestic energy production like never before. But here's the thing. While the federal government does regulate certain aspects of energy production, most of it falls on the states. And the impacts of energy development fall on local communities from Pennsylvania to Texas to Oklahoma. Those impacts are causing tension in towns all across the country. Today, Inside Energy's Lee Patterson reports on the struggle between two priorities, energy development and housing development. She's going to take us to Colorado's Front Range, where drilling rigs and subdivisions are both going in in towns north of Denver. At the intersection of these two types of development are serious concerns about health and safety. The following story first appeared on an episode of the podcast Trump on Earth. So over the summer, I'm at this routine meeting of bureaucrats in an office building in downtown Denver. And the walls and the carpet and the mauve fabric-colored chairs, they're all various shades of neutral. There are oil and gas commissioners sitting up at the front of the room, and they each have those long, skinny black microphones in front of them. The audio here is kind of crackly. Okay, we're going to call the meeting to order. Monday, July 24th, oil and gas commission hearing. There's some time for public comment, and so folks gather, they sit down in those mob chairs. There will be no clapping, no hooting and hollering, or I will clear the room and you will come in one at a time. Everybody's going to get three minutes. And people got up one after the other and absolutely unloaded. I believe we are addicted to fossil fuels. Please wake up. We're killing ourselves. We're killing everyone. And I don't know if that doesn't bother you. We've got to stop the permits. We've got to look at the health of the people of Colorado. And this part of the meeting goes on for like two hours. And, and at times it gets pretty personal. And I'm really furious because you have been neglecting your job for years. And you know it. Whose side are you on? The people of Colorado or the oil and gas executives and the industry? At one point, I just look over at these oil and gas commissioners and I'm thinking, what is going through their heads right now? You look disinterested. You look disinterested, and you all look disinterested. You just don't know what, how, how much anger there is in this state. You have no clue. Thank you for letting me speak. But you people, you disgust me. Okay, we're going to take a 15-minute break. I, I understand. I mean, I... I see and hear as much of it as anybody possibly could that there are communities that really didn't bargain on this. Matt Lepore is the head of the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, so he's the top oil and gas regulator in the state. 
when it's not the EPA saying how much pollution a drilling rig is allowed to produce, for example. It's Matt Lepore and the commission setting those rules. He was at that public meeting, front and center, and a lot of the anger was directed right at him. They did not come to Colorado to participate with oil and gas, you know, in their backyard or their neighborhood or however they want to characterize it. So Colorado is known for mountains and for skiing and for marijuana, of course. And a lot of people move here for all of those things. But really, it's an energy state. It's a top producer of oil and gas. Much of the controversy we're seeing can be tied to this fact that in Colorado, as no other place in the country that I'm aware of, we have this fast-growing population in the same place where there is a uh, very, very, very rich shale oil and gas resource. What happens when people and oil and gas become neighbors? That's what our story is about today, told through the people who live with it, who regulate it, and research it, starting off with something that happened here last spring. In this scene, I'm going to tell some of the story through the Campman family. My name's Lee. I'm a reporter with Hi, Rocky Leo. Mountain PBS. How are you? This is Fine. Tiffany and Chris Campman. I met them outside of the Rocky Mountain Christian Church. It's in a town called Frederick, and there's a meeting going on there tonight. We live at 6301 Union Avenue. We're about four houses away from the event. The event. That's what this meeting's about. I had a boy of four and a boy of seven of year, years old running in the front yard when this all went down. And you know. The event went down in a town called Firestone, north of Denver, in a subdivision called Oak Meadows. It's fairly new construction, and it's very, very tidy. It's the kind of neighborhood where homes are flying American flags and there are kids on bikes. It's just a quiet, suburban place. And then one day, a home explodes, and it goes up in flames. All of a sudden, the house shook, and we heard a loud bang. It's what most neighbors... Immediately, your mind runs wild with what happened. People in there, they said, Oh my God, look at the fire. Some kids oh, took a video of the whole thing and put it up on YouTube. It's on fire now, the whole area is smoked People down. are coming outside, they're gathering around so the house. We're going to try to call for people, see if we can hear any voices. Of course, this was over all the noise, which was fire alarms, people screaming, the creaking of the home. The house should all those things were happening. Like Windows, front columns, the roof, everything is in the wrong place. There's no structure left anymore. And then here come the police, or the, probably the fire department. West side of the house, and I just remember thinking, there's nothing I can do. And I'm going to have to walk away from this, knowing that there's people in the house and knowing that we're just going to have to turn our backs. Within the last hour, Denver 7 has learned the remains of two people have been pulled from the rubble of this house explosion and fire. It's all over the news. Two people died and another was badly burned. And at the time, I didn't make a connection between the home explosion and the beat I cover, which is energy. But then nine days later, I get a press release from an oil and gas company called Anadarko. They are huge here. And the headline is that the company is voluntarily shutting down 3,000 wells in the area, quote, in an abundance of caution, unquote. The press release refers to the home explosion and to heavy hearts. And I'm thinking, what? What is the connection here? What's going on? 
Turns out, the explosion was caused by a small pipeline leaking odorless gas into the basement of the home that exploded. The pipeline had been attached to an oil and gas well close to the house, just 178 feet away. That oil and gas well is owned by Anadarko. A lot of people in this area happen to live close by to this kind of infrastructure. Colorado's Front Range is home to one of the fastest growing metro areas in the country. So there's construction everywhere, there are subdivisions going up, and it's all happening right on top of an oil and gas field that has been producing for decades. It's about a month after the explosion that I run into Chris and Tiffany Campman outside of the Rocky Mountain Christian Church. They were going into a meeting, and it's a meeting with oil and gas regulators and with Anadarko, and it's about the explosion. I wasn't allowed in, but I called them, I called the Campmans the next day to ask what they had learned in the meeting. And Chris Campman said to me, well, we found out that there's been discovered a big pocket of gas underneath the street in our neighborhood. Um, they definitely found a pocket of gas. Um, in the same neighborhood where the home exploded. So he tells me that story and he tells me that he and his family just don't feel safe and that this is all very, very distressing. We get off the phone. And he calls me back maybe two minutes later saying, you know, are you seeing this? Are you hearing this? And I said, Chris, what are you talking about? And he says, well, you won't believe this, but there's been another explosion. We felt like a shaking and the dishes shook. I asked my son what that noise was. And he said, Mommy, I think it's thunder. And then we walked out to our breezeway by our house and we saw smoke. So I'm sure you can imagine what we thought it probably was after everything we've been through. Essentially, what we found out later is that an oil storage tank, something that's called a tank battery, had exploded just a couple of miles away from Firestone. One worker died and three more were injured. And the tank battery, that site, is owned by Anadarko. And at this point, for folks who live in Oak Meadows, where the home exploded, it just feels like one thing after another after another. Nauseous. I I feel nauseous. And... It definitely needs to be some answers. I think that, you know, and some accountability. The home explosion in Firestone is what's known as a focusing event. And a focusing event is some sort of disaster or accident that makes people sit up and pay attention. At the federal level, a focusing event would be something like the BP oil spill or some of the oil train explosions that have made news over the past five years or so. With a focusing event, residents start pushing for solutions, and policymakers and elected officials, they start doing something about it. Answers and accountability, like Tiffany Campman said. The explosion in Firestone, I think, is going to be regarded as quite important. You know, this explosion affected the public uh, affected this family in Firestone, not by their choice. This is Joe Ryan. He's an environmental engineer at the University of Colorado. Uh, I think that's going to make a big difference in how carefully we choose to regulate oil and gas. And I think it should. Joe Ryan and his team research trade-offs. The environmental, social, and economic trade-offs of oil and gas development and how those trade-offs should factor into regulations. He is all about making better decisions through data. 
Here's some data we've collected. In Colorado, companies have reported more than 1,600 leaks and spills over the past three years. And since January of 2016, there have been at least 24 fires and explosions related to oil and gas. It's important to note that the vast majority of these incidents didn't result in injury or death. A little more, Joe. I meet Joe Ryan in a town called Lafayette, which is not too far from Firestone. He's doing some water sampling with a research assistant. So this is baseline testing. For the for Boulder County, this is baseline in anticipation or in precaution of what kind of oil and gas development might happen. Baseline testing. Testing that's done before something happens, like oil and gas development, so you can tell if that activity's changed anything, like groundwater quality, for example. Ryan is one of many, many researchers studying the impacts of oil and gas right now. He and several others I've talked to point to one specific safety regulation that is particularly tricky and really, really contentious, and that's the distance between homes and oil and gas wells, and that's called a setback distance. The setback distance is a great example of how lots of different kinds of scientific information. When it comes to setbacks, there's a lot of different information to consider, he says. Information on air emissions, water quality risks of fires and explosions. In addition to all of that, there are economic factors. Like it or not, communities, politicians, and businesses do consider that stuff. How do we balance these? You know, and I think that's a challenging subject uh, that regulators and legislators have a tough time weighing. So instead, the oil and gas setback distances become a compromise. Joe Ryan is describing exactly what happened in Colorado back in 2013. Okay, we're going to move right into the reconvening the deliberations for the rulemaking on the statewide setbacks. After months of debate, the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, COGCC, voted to update the state setback regulations. They voted to increase that distance between drilling and homes to 500 feet. And it was a compromise between everyone from energy companies to farmers to home developers to concerned residents. And that updated distance, it addresses nuisances like noise and lighting issues. But when it comes to more serious problems like air emissions... There was not, in our opinion, sufficient clear, undisputed scientific evidence to base a setback number on. Frankly, nothing would make me happier than somebody to tell me 1,007 and a half feet is safe for everybody. That would be fantastic. You're hearing from Matt Lepore again, director of the state's Oil and Gas Commission. That's not going to happen. That, that was not the case in 2008. It's not the case in 2012. It is not the case in 2017. There may not be sufficient, clear, undisputed scientific evidence on setbacks, in Matt Lepore's words, but there is a growing body of research. In 2016, a group of researchers published a paper looking at setbacks in Colorado, Texas, and Pennsylvania, and their conclusion was that setbacks were not always big enough to reduce potential threats to human health. More? Yeah, right around there. Joe Ryan says that Colorado's setback is on the higher end, but that it's just not based on any scientific analysis. Maybe this is the engineer in me, but can we put some numbers on those things and actually recognize that we all have to weigh that, um, the benefits against the costs? 
Remember, better decisions through data. That's his whole thing. One thing I always try to remind people of is that we're still heating our homes with uh, fossil fuels, almost everybody. We're still generating electricity, a lot of electricity with fossil fuels. We're still driving around and consuming a lot of fossil fuels. So we're making choices that create a demand for this activity that's now hitting us in our neighborhoods and disrupting lives, potentially affecting public health. How much of that are we willing to accept? There are risks that come with living around oil and gas development. But people are still moving here. Between 2015 and 2020, the population of the North Front Range is expected to grow by 85,000 people. And we should say that there is no statewide rule for how close new homes can be built to existing oil and gas wells. That's called a reverse setback. And in Colorado, it varies quite a bit depending on where you live. In the case of the home explosion in Firestone, that oil and gas well was just 178 feet away from the home, because that's how close the home was built to it. And so with new homes going up and people moving in and big drilling projects on the table, communities and energy companies are being forced to figure it out. We're at yet another public meeting on oil and gas, and it's a city council meeting in a city called Broomfield, about 20 miles or so south of Firestone. And like Firestone, it's a Denver suburb with lots of new homes going up. Randy Ahrens is the mayor here. It looks like 90 people have signed up to speak. It's going to be a long night. That's going to put us at uh, 270 minutes, roughly four hours of testimony. The main room here is totally full, and there's an overflow area where people are watching the whole thing on big TV screens, and there are a couple of police officers standing outside. Tonight you'll be making a decision that could affect our community for decades, maybe generations ahead. This is a guy named John Dulles. He lives here in Broomfield. The home explosion in Firestone is weighing on people here. Whether it be the health of our children, the quality of our air and our water, the potential for chemical leaks, industrial accidents, decline in property values, or any number of other adverse impacts, we are placing our community at risk. The proposed project is big. 84 wells spread across six pads mixed into suburban sprawl. The threat of a lawsuit can never be sufficient to let us abandon our principles, what we know to be right, to act otherwise is frankly cowardice. Okay, so we'll get to the whole lawsuit question later, but for now, what you need to know is that after hours and hours of public comment, the city council is going to vote on this project. There's been a lot going on leading up to this vote, and there's a lot of attention on how it all plays out. So here is a very condensed summary of how we got here. Start by rewinding to the summer of 2016. Extraction Oil and Gas. It's a young, up-and-coming oil and gas company, and they specialize in what's known as urban drilling. Extraction was formed with the purpose of developing resources in urban settings. Extraction files the paperwork for this project in Broomfield, that big project John Dulles was talking about in the meeting. 
And Broomfield, in response, creates an oil and gas task force made up of regular people. And they put a ton of time into gathering baseline data on things like air quality and noise. They meet with all sorts of experts, and they go on field trips with extraction. After all of that, the task force writes up new town guidelines for oil and gas. Those guidelines cover everything from insurance requirements to disclosure of chemicals to much larger setbacks between homes and drilling. Now, this last one, of course, is a biggie. And now to the elephant in the room. The big lift is setbacks. Setbacks. This is Susan Phillips Spee speaking at a meeting a few weeks ago. She's a task force member, and she's basically saying that a 500-foot setback might work in a rural area. 500 feet? Okay, we're fine. But when you're in a residential area, and you're not looking at single wells, you're looking at multiple well pads, the risk analysis says danger going up. This idea keeps coming up again and again at meetings, that the regulations that the state already has on the books might be protective enough in rural areas, but just aren't good enough when drilling is going on in more urban populated areas. And that's why Broomfield's self-designed drilling guidelines go way beyond what the state requires. Here's Susan Phillips-Spees again at a different meeting. We've taken a much more comprehensive approach to dealing with oil and gas exploration than any other community. So we're not only being watched by other communities around us, we're being watched by the state as a whole, we're being watched actually nationally. What extraction is proposing also goes well beyond what the state requires operators to do. And they've gone back and forth with Broomfield changing their plan repeatedly over months and months of negotiations to come up with something that both sides could potentially live with. The company has called its plan one of the best engineered development plans in the, the country. Has been that we've brought a number of innovations to the state. And Brian Kane, extraction spokesperson, um, described it all to me in great detail. The world's first quiet completions fleet. During an interview a few months ago. Um, the sound walls that you see. To list just a few of these so-called BMPs, best management practices, extraction is planning to use uh, things like electric rigs quieter electric drilling rigs. They're planning to remove dozens of old oil and gas wells, and they'll transport stuff by pipeline instead of by truck. And they're planning to spend millions and millions of dollars on landscaping to cover it all up. These BMPs and the guidelines from the task force are rolled up into the agreement between the city and the company that's on the table here tonight. It's over 100 pages long and details exactly how extraction will drill and operate its 84 wells, how it's all going to work with health and safety. The agreement that gobbled up nearly a year's worth of negotiations, tonight, the city council votes on it, either to give the project the go-ahead or not. motion to adopt the resolution. Okay, that'd be resolution 2017-186 with the wild grass provision and 60 days advance notice. The clock reads 1.35 in red neon letters. That's 1.35 a.m. The Broomfield City Council has been listening to people get up and talk for almost six hours, and now they're finally voting on extraction's plan. Six, six, that passed six to four. And just like that, it passes, 6-4. A few people from extraction had been sitting in the second row wearing suits. They get up quietly and they leave. 
The plan is for drilling to begin next summer. But this is not the end of the story. Because although extraction oil and gas basically has Broomfield's permission to move ahead, the agreement is a signed contract after all, it's not clear that any oil and gas company has to do what Broomfield says. Because here in Colorado and everywhere else, oil and gas regulation mostly falls to the state, not to local governments. The state Supreme Court has even said so ruling a few years back that when local oil and gas rules are in conflict with state oil and gas rules, the state wins out. It's something called preemption. So that guy who you heard from at the meeting, John Dulles, he was signaling that the city of Broomfield, in trying to control oil and gas development in any big way, may find itself in court. The threat of a lawsuit can never be sufficient to let us abandon our principles, what we know to be right, to act otherwise is, frankly, cowardice. Turn left onto Twilight Avenue. A couple of weeks ago, I drove over to Twilight Avenue in Oak Meadows. That's the subdivision in Firestone, the town we told you about where the home exploded. And it was the day that the excavator had showed up to remove the remains of the house. And so I sat there and watched. Big metal jaws scooping up some bent wrought iron, lots of siding and floorboards, and stuff that's really been charred beyond recognition. It was eerie. This story is not over, but in that moment, it did feel as though I was witnessing the end of a chapter. And as that chapter closes, here are some important developments. In August, Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper announced updates to the state's oil and gas regulations. So today we're proposing uh, seven changes. Seven changes in response to the home explosion in Firestone. Those changes include stricter pipeline regulations, improved safety training for workers, and creating a program to deal with old abandoned wells. A lot of people say these changes don't go far enough. And so far, increasing that 500-foot setback is not on the table. As for exactly what happened with that pipeline, why the home exploded, why it was leaking, there's a lot we still don't know. The National Transportation Safety Board is investigating it, and that is ongoing. I go and visit Chris and Tiffany Campman, who live just around the corner from where the home exploded. They're all out playing baseball. You guys love this backyard? Next. It was a little small for us, but it worked out. We made it work. Whoa! All right, a little easier there, mister, a little easier. This is our, our, you know, our dream home, and I think the thing that every, every family wants, maybe minus the white picket fence, because we don't have that, but <laughs> just, you know, the all-American dream, I guess, you know, living out here at a little quieter pace and, you know, a safer area and community. But this whole home explosion thing has been a really difficult thing for their kids. One of them draws pictures of the explosion in crayon. The other one runs for cover at loud noises. Do you want to leave Firestone? Uh, no, I don't want. Um, I think as a human being, you go, should we? Ooh, you're good. You go, should we, um, for the safety of our family and for the you know, prosperity of our own family, should we? And that shouldn't be a question we're asking today, but 
unfortunately we are. But then, Chris Cameron makes a really interesting point. There's been a lot of attention on Oak Meadows. Anadarko is disconnecting old pipelines, a process called plugging and abandoning. There's a hotline, people have gas monitors. We may have inadvertently just moved into the safest community in all of Firestone. That was Inside Energy reporter Lee Patterson. And if we didn't answer all your questions about energy, send them over to ask at insideenergy.org. Answers to your questions could be on a new Inside Energy podcast. Thanks for listening.